Hello, producer Jacob here. Just to note, this podcast was recorded prior to the Mar-a-Lago search warrant affidavit being released by the US Justice Department on Friday. However, the conversation adds much wider context to the legal peril former President Trump finds himself in. We hope you enjoy it. Hello and welcome back to the Bunker Daily. For his entire career, Donald J. Trump, 45th President of the United States of America, has treated the law as something to be worked with and around rather than strictly obeyed. His careers in real estate, business and gambling have all been dogged by complaints, rumours and insolvencies. He's entered various of his businesses into Chapter 11 bankruptcy on six occasions. I've used the laws of this country just like the greatest people that you read about every day in business have used the laws of this country, he said in 2015 to do a great job for my company, my employees, myself, and my family. But with the presidency, Trump found himself under a greater degree of scrutiny than ever before, and the processes against him have moved from financial procedures to full legal investigations. Will the FBI seizure of documents from Mar-a-Lago go anywhere? How much legal danger is Trump really in, and why has it taken so long for the law to catch up with him? Joining me today to discuss all this is Professor Julia Rosari from the Department of Political Science at Marquette University, an expert in the politics in the American state. Thanks for joining us in the bunker, Professor Rosari. Thank you for having me. So firstly, what's the current state of play with regards to the FBI seizure of documents from Mar-a-Lago? Well, the big news stories over here are mostly about revelations about the kind of scope and speculation mostly about the nature of the documents. We can find out some things about the documents, about what what classifications they had, although that turns out to be a really technical question that doesn't reveal a lot of information on its own. And then some some revelations about kind of what the what the trajectory has been in terms of the former president taking these documents out of the White House to Mar-a-Lago and the government's attempts to recover them. So, you know, most recently, a fairly lengthy letter from the head of the National Archives trying to explain the situation. And it becomes clear reading that letter that that the government had been trying to obtain the documents for some time. So this, on the one hand, kind of reveals a lot of these sort of technical questions about what's in the documents, how do presidential records work, all of these new legal questions that a lot of people, including myself, had not really had much opportunity to think about up to this point. But also on the sort of both legal and political side, it has revealed you know, that this wasn't just like, oops, we accidentally took a file box because it got packed in with the socks. You know, it was, you know, it makes it seem like a much more deliberate effort. And so that really is the kind of state of play here. There's a lot of speculation about what might have been in the documents. And I think not a lot that is concretely known. I mean, this is the story which has grabbed the most attention from Trump's ongoing travails, but there's a whole host of other ongoing cases right now which he's embroiled in. What are the most significant of those? Yeah, so I, I think to sort of contextualize this, the, the raid on Mar-a-Lago a couple of weeks ago was really, you know, happened in the context of these ongoing January 6th hearings that have been happening all summer and that have been really, I think, for for people who follow politics have been really quite dramatic and have garnered some significant following. And initially, I think it was probably widespread. People thought when they heard that the FBI was searching for stuff at Mar-a-Lago that this was related to January 6th somehow. What we've learned since then suggests that that may not be the case. It may be something completely separate. And I don't know that we can necessarily 
weigh which one is more significant. Again, probably depends somewhat on some things we don't know about the the nature of the security secrets and what was what was the plan with those secrets. But I still think, you know, I'm glad you asked this question because I think that this has somewhat overshadowed the January 6th hearings in the last few weeks in the news. And I still think that the January 6th hearings really get at some some very crucial stuff with regard to the peaceful transfer of power and the health of American democracy and the ways in which the former president, you know, increasingly we have revelations that suggest that these were deliberate subversions of these critical processes of, of democracy. And I also say, you know, I live in the middle of the country in Wisconsin, but I recently spent some time in Washington, D.C., and for people there, the, the, the violence of the January 6th events is still really, is really present. The chaos of that day is really, is really something, you know, people know people who were affected, and it's, it, the nation has not healed, even though it's not something we're talking about every day. So these things, it seems like increasingly the likelihood is they're operating in parallel. And in terms of the legal processes that Trump is facing in these sort of different arenas at the moment, is there a time limit around them? I mean, are things like the midterm elections, which are likely to sort of break in the Republicans' favour, are things like the midterms going to impact their progress or do they run on a separate track? So it's a separate track. Um, the midterms uh, affect are sort of a political deadline. If, in fact, the Republicans take the, the control of the House of Representatives, which they're still favored to do. Currently, a lot of forecasts have the, the Democrats favored to take the Senate. So we may be looking at a very, very split government here in the United States. And what that means, if the Republicans take control of the House of Representatives, the, the majority in that chamber will set the agenda. And one of the things that they can do is they can investigate the Department of Justice really for anything that they can, you know, they can get the votes for in that chamber and can use a lot of those processes of oversight to take up a lot of time in the Department of Justice to potentially subpoena members of the Department of Justice and publicly reveal information that the Department of Justice might have preferred to keep separate or keep secret, so or keep confidential during the course of their investigation. So they can sort of politically derail it. They can't tell them to stop. You know, the Department of Justice operates independently. And and justice to the in this way, you know, couple couple things about American politics, right? One is that the executive branch and the legislative branch are co-equal branches that do not have power you know, they don't have complete power over the other. They have checks on the other. And so they can operate on separate tracks. But the other thing about this is the Department of Justice is a little bit a little bit distinct from some of the other cabinet departments. So some of our other departments, like the Department of Health and Human Services, the Department of Agriculture, these really, they're responsible for implementing policy. And in that sense, they're often considered sort of distinct arms of the executive branch. And so you expect those departments to kind of carry out the president's agenda as it's written into law and as the president sees fit. The Department of Justice is expected to have some independence from the White House. And in fact, apparently the White House was not informed of the Mar-a-Lago raid. Ideally, the Department of Justice is working on behalf of the Constitution and the American people and does have a little bit of this kind of wall of separation between the political agenda and the policy agenda of the president and the White House and the operation of the department itself. In practice, everything is really polarized right now. And, and that's, you know, that's kind of a difficult case to make. But I think that 
Merrick Garland is a kind of legal, a person of a you know distinguished legal career and really values that independence and has tried to act accordingly and kind of keep himself distant from the politics of the Biden administration. I mean, despite that, were you personally surprised that the DOJ escalated that case in the way that it did? Because I think you know, there's been a feeling that you know, you sort of kept thinking, well, something's going to catch up with Trump at some point, at some point. And then suddenly there's actually a raid, you know, on where on where he lives. Um, were you surprised that things escalated to that degree? I mean, at this point, I'm not sure I have the capacity for surprise in American <laughs> politics. I mean, I certainly, it certainly was, you know, one of those news alerts where you look at your phone and then you look again and go, what? You know, I wasn't surprised. Progressives in particular have been really frustrated with the Garland Department of Justice for not moving quickly. I had sort of interpreted that silence knowing what I know, which isn't a whole lot about the Department of Justice, but some. With that background knowledge, you know, it occurred to me that what's was sort of potentially happening there is the shoring up of a legal case that uh, is as walled off from domestic political disputes as possible, that is as kind of factual as possible. That part did not surprise me. And I will say, I mean, this sort of gets into some of the bigger questions about the political ramifications of the kind of legal legal proceedings against a former president, which so far there aren't any, there, right? There aren't any, any charges. There's just been a search. In the past, we've had a couple of these kinds of cases where everyone kind of knows the president did something they shouldn't have done and nothing, nothing happens or they're not they're We're sort of, we sort of move on from it. Watergate is the, the prime example of that. Nixon resigned, which of course is a, a big price to pay, but then was immediately pardoned by Gerald Ford. And the kind of idea was, you know, we're not going to have a big truth and reconciliation moment about this. We're going to move on. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, there's a couple other potential examples, but that's really the big one. I think that is the defining feature. And so the idea that with an ex-president who's eligible to run for re-election as of now, and who's somewhat of a favorite to do so, the idea that that this would be, you know, this would be kind of mixed up in a legal proceeding, it's definitely new. But I think there's been a lot of discomfort over the years. People still debate about Ford's pardon of Nixon in 1974 about how how do we sort of find political peace and not open up every every wound and you know every sort of partisan dispute around the presidency while simultaneously making sure that everyone is equal under the rule of law. We we have not developed good answers to that in our political system, in my opinion, and we are seeing, I think, some innovation in terms of really thinking about what it would look like to hold the the president accountable. I mean, there's obviously wider repercussions from that, as you say. There's obviously a legal issue, and then there's the political and social repercussions. Do you think those would have weighed on Garland's decision? So this is really where I think, you know, a lot of people who know much more about the personalities in the Department of Justice than I do have sort of weighed in and said, uh, you know, not really sure. I'm sure there's no way it could not, but I think that it has has shaped his decision in the sense that it has been, has been very deliberate, very slow, very sort of not responsive or engaged with progressive politics, which have been really active and, you know, kind of pressuring the administration. That I think is probably how it weighed in. Like you have to be, you have to really make sure that all the, the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed in this kind of legal case. Is that different 
because of the kind of hyper polarized politics around Trump than it would have been 20 or 30 years ago. You know, that I don't that I don't really know. I I'm a little bit of a minority party in in this in the fact that I sort of see more similar dynamics play out over time. They play out in different contexts, so they look different. But, you know, I think that always would have been deeply, deeply political. And if you you look at the impeachment of Bill Clinton, you look at Iran-Contra, you look at Watergate, all of these things were shaped by, by various forms of domestic politics. It's just domestic politics looked different than it does now, in which the two parties are very invested in their kind of team identities, very divided. And President Trump is very, is a very kind of vocal and present ex-president. Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the Slow Newscast from Tortoise, Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. Do you think the greater risk, though, lies in pursuing a legal case against Trump with everything that may spark off? Or is the greater risk in not pursuing it with the precedent that then sets? So here again, I think, so I'll tell you kind of what I see as the range of expert opinion, and then I'll tell you where I fall on that spectrum. So (laughs) you've had a number of people, I think, talk about accountability. I think there's been a big conversation about the many, I mean, part of the context with Trump specifically is that he's been impeached twice, first president to be impeached twice. And he is the first president to have senators of his own party vote in favor of conviction. And that happened in, in 2020. Mitt Romney was the first senator to do so. And then six other Republicans joined him in 2021 in Trump's second impeachment. So There's 57 votes in favor of conviction. If we did not have such a high conviction threshold, if we didn't have a, a two-thirds, that number would have been enough for a conviction. So, you know, between the Mueller investigation, the Ukraine situation, and January 6th, leaving aside everything else, there are a lot of people in the United States, maybe not a majority, but a substantial number of people who who feel like there's a lot to be accounted for that hasn't been accounted for. On the other side, obviously, and this is where the other side of opinion comes in, there are people who are saying, you know, reconciliation is really important. Reconciliation is part of our national political culture, and you can easily envision a future in which pursuing Trump leads to more political violence. And the Trump supporters, you know, someone already engaged in a violent act, ultimately that person that person was killed in Ohio the day after the raid or that week. And right, that we could see this sort of escalation and escalating things is is not the direction that we want to go. And so there is that opinion that sort of is really follows this, I think, fairly similar logic to the Ford 1974 pardon of Nixon, which is you move on, you take a sort of magnanimous stance toward the person who's been engaged in wrongdoing it's not normally how our criminal justice system operates if you're poor, but it, you know, so, so I'm kind of on the other side where I see, first of all, very 
unequal justice system. But also as a presidential scholar, I see there's this sort of abstract problem of the presidency and constraining the presidency by by rule of law. And I see the United States as having really tilted our balance in favor of of stability and order in the presidency and not in favor of whatever in, instability that you know real justice requires and i'm i'm really in a minority i think among a lot of people in my circles and that i think bill clinton should have faced more accountability not for not for the grand jury nonsense but for having an affair with a subordinate who is half his age i think that was that was an abuse of the immense power of the presidency. And we should have at least had a conversation about it. So I really think we give presidents a huge pass on a huge range of things. And now we're dealing with something that has potentially national security implications is a much bigger deal than anything Bill Clinton did. But as I said, I think that's a big enough deal that it crossed the threshold for me. So this is off the charts, but I don't want to pretend that I'm not sort of on an extreme point on the spectrum as far as my views about accountability. You've mentioned there a few times the uh, obviously the aftermath of Watergate and the fact that uh, Nixon was pardoned by his successor Ford. Wasn't the quid pro quo there though partly that Nixon kind of went away quietly and didn't continue sort of meddling in political life? Yeah, I think that was that. No one exactly knows what the agreement was behind closed doors, but certainly that's that's more or less what happened. Nixon continued in Republican politics to try and rehabilitate his image. And he, at a certain point, after a certain point, I think other Republicans even actually sought his foreign policy expertise. So he didn't go away, but his not going away was pretty quiet. That's sort of how I would describe it. He stayed around quietly. Certainly nothing. I mean, there's just nothing. There's no comparison to Trump's level of presence in the Republican Party and in American politics, I think, then to now. Certainly nothing that that I can think of nothing in modern politics. Usually presidents, when they, they are, they lose or they, they're term limited, they go into kind of philanthropy and become statesmen. And so just, they do stay involved in party politics, but not in the same, not quite in the same way. So it is, it's very unusual. It's very, very unusual. And I think that's right. I mean, I think that that's part of that story is that if Trump is sort of given the the Nixon treatment, I don't think that that's going to result in sort of the, the debates and the divisions around Trumpism are not going to go away. And I mean, arguably, the Nixon ones didn't didn't either. And they're arguably maybe some of the same things we're dealing with. But Nixon himself kind of quietly moved out of the spotlight. Take a step back and looking at a, a sort of longer view on these things. When you look at Trump's life and career and the way he's conducted himself, why do you think it's taken him so long to arrive at this point? And what does that say about the way politics and justice kind of intersect in America? I mean, I honestly have no idea leading up to his presidency. I was not a close follower of his his business dealings up to that point. I think sometimes there were legal repercussions, but they weren't very big. I think broadly, it says that we do have two justice systems and it is easy. I mean, to some extent, the quote you read at the beginning, I think, is kind of true of American politics that are the American legal system. There are a lot of loopholes for people who can afford good lawyers who can find them. There are a lot of loopholes for people with money. And ironically, that in some ways, that sort of sense that the system is not okay was part of what I think made Trump so appealing to a specific group of voters. And you saw that on the left too with Bernie Sanders. This is not to be ignored in kind of the, the drive – 
in American politics right now. There's a real division, I think, between people who see the Trump years as deviation from the norm, and they really want to go back to the norm and the status quo, and people who see really deep systemic problems. And, you know, I think that that's, that's part of the issue. In terms of the presidency, that's, again, a little bit less surprising. I think what we essentially have is a system in which, you know, the, the bar, the legal bar for the president in some ways is sort of is lower. The things that will not be prosecuted for a president, and you saw this in the Mueller investigation, that things did not rise to the level of, of prosecution. So in that sense, you know, because it's so destabilizing to go after a sitting president, or rather there were there's a sort of accepted legal precedent that you don't prosecute a sitting president. So I think that's, you know, that's a really screwed up thing in our system, in my opinion. Not that we want to move in the direction of using those legal tools as political tools, right? That's where I think people get scared. People throw around the term banana republic a lot, don't like that term. But I think they do fear moving into a system in which, you know, prosecution and impeachment just become part of the toolkit of how you derail your political opponents. And that that does produce a lot of sort of instability. So I see that there's another side to this coin. I just think that the United States has tilted very heavily towards stability. And you combine that with a system that's very favorable to to people who already have money and power. And I think that's part of how Trump has evaded consequences throughout his life. One phenomenon that we're seeing a little bit, and that if you poke around deeply in the news that that tells you why this time is different, is that Trump has alienated a lot of people in the legal community at this point. There are people who are either ideologically sympathetic or are willing to take his money that have started to sort of to back away because they see Trump doing a lot of things, you know, being not truthful, being inconsistent. And I think he's having more and more trouble getting people to defend him. I think that the events after the 2020 election have contributed to that. And I think some of what we've seen now has contributed to that, that he's no longer, you know, not a very attractive client. And so his relationship with the legal profession is, is pretty strained. And that's, that's a factor. Like I said, if you sort of poke around in the US news, you can find that. And moving back to the politics, just to wrap things up, much has been written about the extent to which Trump has poisoned the culture within the Republican Party. But how far do you think he's actually poisoned it legally? So, I mean, if he goes down, how much of what we know of the GOP at present goes with him? This is a good question. And so here's, here's sort of my best guess, knowing we don't know a lot of things. I think that people will go down for both for January 6th and and for whatever they find with these documents, whether or not it's Trump, uh, other people will go down. But it's not going to be the people that you think of as a sort of Trump political progeny, right? It's not gonna be Matt Gates. It's not gonna be Marjorie Taylor Greene. It's not gonna be Ron DeSantis. They, you know, they didn't have anything to do specifically with the documents, I don't think. Maybe they did. Um, but that would be really, you know, that would be a whole nother saga. You know, January 6th, similarly, there are other politicians, Lindsey Graham of South Carolina in particular, who have been implicated in in some of those efforts to overturn election results. You know, I think that that, you, you know, we'll see if that if he'll bring some of the, the GOPers down with him legally. I, I don't think that will happen to a great extent. I don't think that that's the picture. I think what you're seeing instead is him sort of bringing the Republican Party into some of this kind of fundamental lawlessness talking about rejecting election results, which is a really widespread view now. 
in the Republican Party and also talking about, you know, defunding the FBI and these sort of anti-system questions. This is a very strange position to be in because the FBI is a very conservative institution. Um, usually it's it's liberals that are upset with it. But, you know, seeing where this sort of this whole anti-institutionalist vein goes in the Republican Party, it's, you know, a really, I think, really open question. And that's and just to clarify, I think Lindsey Graham has been subpoenaed, not that he's necessarily been anything more than that. Finally, just to wrap things up, uh, if you have to take a gamble on this, just how much trouble do you think Trump is in? If we came back in a year's time for this conversation, what would be your best guess as to where things will be? So my best guess is that we'll still be working toward that. My best guess is this won't have gone away. And even if if Republicans take control of the House of Representatives, I don't think they'll actually be able to make this go away. My best guess is that there is something, there's something that will stick and some people will go down. You know, if it's not Trump, it might be higher level people in his administration, some pretty prominent people. There are big debates about whether Trump will, will go to prison. And I think once, once you've started that debate, you've sort of suggested the, the seriousness of, of the situation. So I definitely think this will be ongoing. I, I, my best guess is in a year it won't be, we, we, won't, we still won't really know. Professor Azari, thank you very much for joining me on The Bunker today. Thank you. Listeners, just a reminder that The Bunker is kept on air by people like you. If you're enjoying the shows we produce, you should look us up on Patreon, where as little as £2 a month makes you a supporter of our work. The money you pledge goes directly to making the shows and also supports us developing new ones like Doomsday Watch and Origin Story, both of which are available to listen to right now. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast and you'll get your favourite shows early and without ads, along with extra members-only shows like Oh God, What Else? Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Bunker Daily was presented by Justin Quirk. The producers were Jelena Sofronievich, Jacob Archbold and Alex Reese, with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.